Welcome to the Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller from WMHT.org. David Allen Miller conducts the Albany Symphony and he provides commentary on the WMHT Live broadcast. David's commentary is full of fascinating stories about the music, the performances, and more. In order to keep the program mostly music, some of what he provides ends up on the cutting room floor. This podcast contains no music, but it does contain all of David Allen Miller's commentary from the concert broadcast on WMHT Live from WMHT-FM, your classical companion. The Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller's commentary for the Albany Symphony concert broadcast is made possible in part by a grant from the Aaron Copeland Fund for Music, supporting nonprofit organizations that have a history of substantial commitment to contemporary music. Our concert opened with a beautiful suite that John Harbison fashioned from his 1999 opera, The Great Gatsby. Gatsby was premiered at the Metropolitan Opera in 2000, and I happened to be there on opening night. I'm honored to say sitting in the box next to John Harbison, and it was a very exciting experience. It's a, uh, especially in this era of Baz Luhrmann's over-the-top film, it was an incredibly honest and direct and beautifully kind of understated version of Fitzgerald's novel brought to the stage in a very literate and beautiful uh, version. John, in fact, fashioned his own libretto because he wanted to stay as close as possible to Fitzgerald, and much of the the libretto, much of the text, is actually drawn directly from the book. Uh, and through the opera, as as through the novella, there are these wonderful crowd scenes. And for the crowd scenes, John put a, a whole society stage band, a sort of jazz band, on stage at the Met. And there's a crooner, a young tenor, who sings in this kind of 1920s pop style. So there's these wonderful 20s-style society band, pop songs, dances, fox trots, tangos, etc., that sort of permeate the fabric of the opera, even though most of the dialogue of the characters is in John's beautifully Stravinskyan uh, and much jazz-inflected his own singular language. So when John came to create this suite from the opera, he wanted to create a 25-minute two-movement suite that sort of told the story of the opera, obviously in this case without singers and without most of the, the actual action of the opera. But he did a very clever thing. He essentially took the stage band that had been in the opera on the stage, and he embedded it in the middle of the wind department of the orchestra. So we actually made a kind of little well for our little jazz band there, right in front of the horns and behind the uh, clarinets and, and bassoons. And the jazz ensemble is made up of a piano, drum set, uh, violin, solo violin in this wonderful 20s fashion, banjo, trumpet, trombone, tuba, and soprano saxophone. And so as the suite progresses, it begins with sort of the serious opening of the opera, and then it sort of morphs effortlessly into these fabulous streams of of pop songs and dances of the period, which are all, in fact, original compositions of John's, and not a single note is borrowed from the 1920s, and yet he's able so wonderfully to evoke this fabulous sort of the gaiety of the roaring 20s, and the music morphs back. Uh, and so in each movement, each movement is about, I don't know, 10 to 12, 12 or 13 minutes, uh, each movement sort of tells one act of the story. So in the first movement, uh, you have this wonderful jazz passage, but then it leads to the wonderful sort of crowd scene, if you know the, if you know the novel, where Gatsby finally uh, gets Daisy to come to his house and he shows her his wealth and his shirts and, and they sort of fall back in love or reignite their love. 
And uh, that music, this sort of ecstatic, beautiful, understated music, is what ends the first half of the suite. The second, su- the second uh, part of the suite, part two, uh, after a, a very brief pause, begins again with just a few bars of the sort of serious aspect of setting the scene for Act Two of the opera, and then another one of these incredible dance sequences, which morphs into essentially the, the last scenes of, of the opera, the scene in which Tom and Gatsby finally have their sort of showdown and uh, for Daisy's love, uh, and ultimately Daisy you know, who doesn't really have a sense of self anyway, kind of ends up seeming to go with Tom and Gatsby realizes that his dream of being reunited with his, his childhood love, his young love of Daisy, will not be realized. So this, this uh, cataclysmic scene is portrayed musically. And then you'll hear most of the way through this uh, second part, about seven or eight minutes, you'll hear a kind of rumbling sort of music. Ba-dum, ba-ba-dum, ba-bum, ba-da, ba-ba. And then you'll hear a, a, a 20s car horn in the distance. Ooga, ooga. And you'll hear all this kind of rumbling car sound. It's amazing how John sort of conveys the idea of Gatsby's car with Daisy and Gatsby, you know, rumbling down the road back to East Egg, to West Egg on Long Island, this imagined little town, and the cataclysm of, of um, Daisy essentially running over her husband's girlfriend, Myrtle, don't want to give away the story, but I hope you've all read it, uh, ha- happens, and then we hear uh, sort of this last sad, beautiful, um, nostalgic music that's associated with Nick, the narrator, who's been telling the story sort of after Gatsby's uh, death and uh, sort of about how Gatsby believed in this incredible vision of the future and uh, it was never realized. So in essence, a tragic novella turned into a, a beautiful, tragic, truly American opera and uh, a beautiful suite from that opera uh, that just melds and, and juxtaposes in the most elegant and refined way uh, this sense of the echt roaring 20s and the, the musical ideas of that period with this very powerful and dark story. John Harbison's suite from his opera, The Great Gatsby. It's performed by the Albany Symphony, conducted by me, David Allen Miller. This is the Conductor's Notes podcast, only from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org. That was John Harbison's Suite from The Great Gatsby, uh, a beautiful suite of music from his opera uh, that was premiered at the Met in the year 2000. Next on our all-American program, a very beautiful work that is remarkably neglected. Uh, it is perhaps the only orchestral work of George Gershwin's that is really neglected. It's his second Rhapsody. We all know that the Rhapsody in Blue was an overnight success and has been played more than almost any other piece in the entire canon uh, ever since its premiere in 1924. A number of years later, after writing the Concerto in F and uh, American in Paris and a number of other instrumental pieces, as well as uh, many more musicals. In 1931, George decided to write a second Rhapsody. And it didn't come about because he was trying to uh, relive the glory of the experience of the first Rhapsody when he really kind of burst on the international concert scene. It came about because of a, a movie project that he was involved in. In 1931, he and Ira were out in Hollywood uh, writing for the first time for the movies, writing songs for the movies, and they were involved in a film project with Janet Gaynor called Delicious, a kind of sappy I don't know, uh, comedic drama sort of uh, in which he plays an, a young, sweet Irish immigrant who, who stows away in the cattle section of a boat and comes to New York City and is quite overwhelmed by all the hustle and bustle of the big city. And uh, there was a dream sequence in the movie, and George got very excited about writing a sort of New York 
portrait for this five or six minute dream sequence, which he in fact did. And it, it, it featured a piano, but it was mainly orchestral. And then after the movie was released, uh, George really liked the material and was excited by it and decided he wanted to uh, create a longer orchestral piece from this material. And so he expanded it to about 14 or 15 minutes. Uh, and interestingly, unlike the Rhapsody in Blue, which is very much for the piano with orchestra, or initially it was actually with uh, with band, with J- uh, Paul Whiteman's Society Band. This piece uh, on the title page, I have a, I actually conduct from a facsimile of the manuscript, and on the title page it curiously says, it says uh, George Gershwin's Second Rhapsody for Orchestra with Piano. So I think George's intent was uh, that the piano was not to be that prominent. It's a featured important instrument, but the piece is really about the orchestra with the piano coloring and commenting on it. So a very different venture from the Rhapsody in Blue. And the piece uh, uh, went through a lot of incarnations. Ira, George's great uh, lyricist and namer, uh, originally thought they should call it um, the Rhapsody in Rivets because you hear this initial theme is this riveting theme uh, of, of workmen on the street in New York, you know, riveting, uh, pounding rivets into buildings. And this the piano and the orchestra hammer away at this theme for much of the first part of the piece. And then they decided to call it New York Rhapsody, which I really think is the perfect name for it. I think he would have gotten a lot more performances if he had called it that. But ultimately, for whatever reason, they settled on the name Second Rhapsody. And surprisingly, the piece has just not been played that much. It's a very different language from the Rhapsody in Blue. Gershwin is now seven years older, which in Gershwin years is a very long time. As you know, he only lived for another seven years into his mid-late 30s, died at the age of 38 of a brain tumor, quite tragically and somewhat suddenly. So his uh, so seven years for George was a huge expanse of time, and his music really had changed dramatically. He was very he was a very questing composer and always trying to understand and, and assimilate all the new trends, not only in Broadway and, and popular music, but also in symphonic music. He, he went around Europe for a certain point and met all the great composers and wanted to hear their music. Uh, it's rumored that when he did finally spend a significant time in Hollywood, he actually studied a bit with uh, Arnold Schoenberg. They were close friends and tennis buddies. That was after this piece. But you can already hear his music getting a little more angular and modernist sounding. Uh, it's still very beautiful and sensual, especially the middle, what he calls the Brahmsian theme, not quite as jazzy as the beautiful love theme of Rhapsody in Blue, but similarly uh, deeply felt and very emotional theme. So the piece is in that sense similarly structured to the Rhapsody in Blue. It's got a sort of fast, lively, rivet theme first section, a big, beautiful, lush, uh, romantic middle section, and then a kind of lively ending part. Interestingly, Kevin Cole told me that even though he's played the other Gershwin works all over the world and the country hundreds if not thousands of times. He's only played the second Rhapsody twice, and one of those times was also with us, I think about 10 years ago, at the Albany Symphony. So we're very proud to repeat this work, to bring it back again. I think it's a really beautiful and interesting piece, and I hope you'll enjoy it. Here it is, uh, George Gershwin's second Rhapsody. The pianist is the legendary Gershwin interpreter, Mr. Kevin Cole, and the orchestra is the Albany Symphony. This is the Conductor's Notes podcast, only from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org. The Conductor's Notes podcast, featuring David Allen Miller's commentary for the Albany Symphony concert broadcast, is made possible in part by a grant from the Aaron Copeland Fund for Music, supporting nonprofit organizations that have a history of substantial commitment to contemporary music. For the second half of our program... Uh And I should probably say a word about the program because this is a very exciting and special program for us uh, that we, of course, played first in the Palace Theater. But um, it was designed to be brought to the third annual Spring for Music Festival at Carnegie Hall in New York City. This is a festival that started 
two years ago. This is now, uh, I, I guess, exactly three years ago because this year is the third incarnation. And in the first uh, festival, the Albany Symphony was one of six orchestras invited to appear in the festival. It's a week-long festival of American orchestras, American orchestras of all sizes and shapes, and the the overarching premise of the festival is to bring orchestras that are playing really creative, unusual, innovative programs to Carnegie Hall so that even though they may be well-known and well-exposed and heard in their in their own communities, this is a chance to let these orchestras really be heard on the world stage uh, with these programs. So we were very honored to be included in the first Spring for Music Festival. We brought a, a wonderful American program of Appalachian Spring, the complete version with some beautiful spirituals arrangements that we had, had created and a great piece by George Sintakis. And this year we were quite surprised to be invited back for the third year. We're, in fact, the only orchestra that will have appeared twice on Spring for Music. Every other orchestra will have only appeared uh, in one festival. But we were very honored to be brought back with another all-American program. This one, tonight's program, uh, essentially exploring three major works by three great composers, one living, obviously, John Harbison, two no longer living, Gould and, and Gershwin, but each of whom really spoke the, the language of vernacular America in their music. That's not to say that they didn't also speak a language that was rich in associations with the grand European tradition. Uh, John Harbison's a perfect example of that. For example, uh, John is a, an, an expert, a leading expert on the music of Bach and plays more Bach than just about anybody. At the same time, he's a, an avid jazz musician and a, he even pro- describes himself as a professor of jazzology at MIT, where he's a professor of composition. He leads, conducts a, a jazz choir there and he arranges for them. Morton Gould, of course, the ultimate crossover artist who spent as much time in the pop realm as he did in the symphonic realm, and the great George Gershwin, of course, who essentially established the very idea of symphonic jazz. So three composers who really spoke the language of America in their music, and yet in very serious, formidable, fabulous orchestral terms. So now we turn to this uh, last monumental piece on the program. This is a real rarity, Morton Gould's Third Symphony from 1946. Morton Gould, of course, one of the most significant uh, young composer, conductor, arranger, pianists of the 20th century. You know, like his great idol and his friend, he, he was a number of years younger than Gershwin, but he knew Gershwin when, when Morton was a very young man and they were very friendly. Like Gershwin, Morton could do it all. He could arrange, he could compose, he could write or play jazz and classical and any version of pop. Uh, he was an incredibly versatile artist and musician and one of the very first uh, symphonic artists to occupy the world of radio and television. He had his own orchestra on the radio and television before anybody else did and became quite an internationally celebrated culture figure for that. And so I think, strangely, his legacy since then, he died in 1996 at the age of 82, his legacy since then has been as kind of this 1940s, 50s, 30s, 40s, 50s jazz, pop, crossover, classical artist, when in fact he he was at the same time an extraordinarily gifted and extremely wonderful regular symphonic composer. His music always uh, alluded a little bit to jazz and pop, but is every bit as serious and symphonic as Copland or Bernstein or any of those other composers. Uh, And this is a a very early work of his from the time he was 32 years old. And he was at this time in in great demand with all the orchestras in America. The conductors were all fighting over him for his next premiere. Toscanini premiered his pieces, as did Stokowski, Dmitry Metropolis, the New York Philharmonic, Arthur Rodzinski. All the major conductors of the day were vying uh, to perform Morton's music. It was the hot thing. 
thing. So he premiered this third symphony with the Dallas Symphony in 1946, Morton as conductor. And it was then taken up by Dimitri Metropolis at the New York Philharmonic and performed by Metropolis in the New York Philharmonic in 1949. It's a big, monumental, daring symphonic utterance along the lines of Copland's Third Symphony, if you know that piece, a very optimistic, big-boned, post-World War II symphony by a young American who feels like the world is his oyster and like anything is possible. Uh, So four movements. And strangely, though, even though Metropolis was a great champion of Morton's music and a huge aficionado of his music, Metropolis asked Gould to replace the finale with a somewhat more, quote, serious finale. Uh, I think in my studies of the piece, what happened was, you'll, you'll hear in the symphony, the, the, the third movement is an absolute unique entity. It's a, it's a sort of jazz scherzo, and it gets the entire orchestra just wailing like a gigantic jazz band, not, not unlike the Rhapsody in Blue, I mean, but uh, in unbelievably symphonic terms, because you're dealing with a basically 85 or 90 member orchestra. And it's a thrilling thing. And I think what happened in the the piece is that it's very hard to follow a movement like that with a finale, with a last movement. And I think Morton did a beautiful job. His his last movement starts very slow and deliberate and rather um, restrained and then builds up uh, to be unbelievably climactic. But I think Metropolis probably felt it wasn't quite the right thing to follow this fabulous jazz scherzo. And so he insisted Morton replace it. And Morton did replace it with a, a, a movement that he titled Prelude and Fugue. And it's a rather learned, stodgy, really, frankly, boring movement that doesn't fit the piece because it was written three years after the piece was written. So uh, the Albany Symphony and I actually performed and recorded this piece in the year 2000, 13 years ago, and light years ago. It was funny to come back to it because it's almost hard to remember all the details because it seems like so long ago. But when I came to uh, work on the piece, uh, Shermer, Morton Gould's publisher, sent me all the materials, and um, I found the finale very odd and strange, and it didn't seem to quite fit. It didn't even seem to quite have the same instrumentation, and the layout of the manuscript score looked different. So I called a friend of mine who's a librarian at Shermer, and I said, Greg, is there any chance you could look around in the Gould area and see if there's any other material for the Third Symphony? Because this finale feels strangely like it's not, it doesn't belong. And sure enough, Greg said, I, I've never been to the Shermer publishing house, but I, he said he went to the back, very back room, and high atop a shelf, there's a big box of Gouldiana, and he took down this Gould box and went through it, and he found, in essence, the original finale, which had never uh, been heard since the premiere in 1946, and he sent it to me, and I just thought it sounded so much more idiomatic that I decided to to program that instead, and that is, in fact, the recording we made for Albany Records 13 years ago, and that is the finale that I, I choose to use this time as well and would always use for this piece. But I should say also, much to my surprise, because a, it's a very challenging and a very difficult and a, a, a big listen to hear this piece. Um, you know, it's not quite as easy as Delius, I suppose, um, although I find Delius very hard to listen to. I find this much more interesting to listen to than Delius, with all due respect. Strangely, this piece has never been performed, as far as I know, other than those two performances in 1946 and 49, and then our resurrection of the piece in 2000, and now this, uh, our playing it in Albany and then bringing it to Carnegie Hall. So it's a, a piece that I'm very proud that we've exhumed from the the mists of time and history. And again, I think in a way that the piece and the story of Gould is a little bit of a cautionary tale kind of about the whole 20th century in American music, that there were these wonderful composers among them, and chief among them, Morton Gould, really wonderful composers who, who have by and large been forgotten in the present and whose music is seldom played. This happens to be a, a very ambitious and, a, and an early piece of Morton's, and you know perhaps it's one of the more flawed pieces because it's one of the more ambitious pieces, but there are almost 
hundreds of fantastic works by Morton Gould that today are just neglected by orchestras. And I'm just uh, befuddled. We've played a great number of his works, but I don't know another orchestra that has played more than one every five or ten seasons. I'm just personally befuddled that American orchestras find they have other things to do that are so important that they can't champion the best of our American composers of the last century. So it's with great pride and humility that the Albany and I perform Morton's music, and we love to perform it, and we're delighted to bring the Third Symphony back here for you. This is Morton Gould's mighty Symphony Number no. 3, played by the Albany Symphony, conducted by me, David Allen Miller. Thanks for listening to the Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller of the Albany Symphony Orchestra from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org.